Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast is a production of McAllen Communications, publishers of the Homeland Preparedness News. The mission of Homeland Preparedness News is to inform and educate the American public about the efforts undertaken by its government and private sector to protect them from the ever-evolving threats to the homeland. And welcome to the Homeland Preparedness News podcast. I am your host, Jim Murtha. Today, we're going to discuss a report on America's healthcare infrastructure authored by the Trust for America's Health. The Trust recently released a report assessing the funding of America's healthcare system. In short, the report found our nation wanting in almost all areas of public health. To discuss the details in the report is John Auerbach. Mr. Auerbach is president and CEO of the Trust for America's Health. Over the course of a 30-year career, he has held senior public health positions at the federal, state, and local levels. As associate director at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, he oversaw policy and the agency's collaborative efforts with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, commercial payers, and large health systems. During his six years as the Commissioner of Public Health for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, he developed innovative programs to promote health equity, combat chronic and infectious disease, and support the successful implementation of the state's healthcare reform initiative. As Boston's health commissioner for nine years, he directed homeless, substance abuse, and emergency medical services for the city, as well as a wide range of public health divisions. John Auerbach, welcome to the Homeland Preparedness News Podcast. Thank you very much. Okay, let's start with this. Tell us something about the Trust for America's Health. What's it all about? Where do you get your funding? What kind of mission do you have? Sure. We're a 20-year-old nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C., and our mission is to promote the health and well-being of the American people through uh, a focus uh, on prevention and public health. And since we've been formed 20 years ago, we're entirely funded by foundations. We've never accepted government money or corporate money because we want to be a completely independent voice for the health of the American people. The Trust recently published a report titled The Impact of Chronic Underfunding of America's Public Health System. Now, a report like this released about a year ago would not have had the impact that it may have now since we're in the middle of a pandemic. The timing of the report's release was just serendipity. Tell us why the Trust sponsored the report when it did. Well, truthfully, we do this report every year, and we have done it for uh, a number of years. And, and we've done it because it is a chronic problem that uh, public health is uh, underfunded, uh, often cut. And, uh, and so pulling together the information which documents that looks at it both nationally and in terms of states, we hope will be helpful for both policymakers and members of the public as they think about the various risks that, uh, that they face um, in their communities and families. I assume you distribute the report to various levels of government and any interested parties that would want it? Absolutely. We, we send a copy to every member of Congress and we send copies uh, to 
uh, many people throughout the administration, the Trump administration, and then we just circulate it uh, among the public through a variety of different outlets. So we tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of copies are distributed. I took a look at the report, and it's very comprehensive. If you would, highlight the main areas where underfunding is having the greatest impact. Sure. Well, what we have found uh, is that there's a definite pattern of cutting public health, core public health, the, the public health agencies at the local level, the state level, and at the federal level at CDC, and that this has been occurring since uh, the recession in 2008. Uh, among the highlights of the report are that we've seen a, down, a downward trend in terms of the funding for the Centers for Disease Control. When inflation is factored in, CDC's funding is actually down significantly. Uh, at the state and the local level, we've seen shockingly um, large reductions in funding. Since 2008, for example, we've lost almost 60,000 jobs at the state and the local level of people who previously worked on public health. And what we've been able to document in this report is that this is happening just at the point that we're seeing a dramatic increase in significant emergencies. Certainly, we're seeing that now with COVID-19, but we've also had a year of record weather-related emergencies and a number of other emergencies that we just now don't have the core public health capacity to adequately respond to. Okay, that kind of dovetails into my next question, and this one's going to be rather long, so have a little bit of patience with me on this one. Legislative bodies, whether they are city councils, state legislatures, or Congress, have always been reluctant to fund programs that don't yield immediate results. For instance, uh, a legislature allocates, say, a million dollars for filling potholes. A contractor is hired, and the potholes are filled. The legislature looks to be competent. Now, take a half a billion dollar request for materiel to fight a pandemic that may or may not happen, and then you run into problems. The equipment purchase goes into a national or state stockpile, and it's hidden away. For politicians, that's a problem because they can't take credit for it. I know that's pretty cynical. Maybe now, of course, they'll listen. But once the crisis fades from the headlines, the old way of thinking will return. How do you make sure it doesn't? Well, let me start by saying I totally agree with you. I, I've been, uh, before I worked for Trust for America's Health, I was the city health commissioner in Boston for a decade during 9-11. I was a state health commissioner in Massachusetts during H1N1. And I worked at CDC in during the period of time when we were grappling with both Ebola and Zika. And each one of those times I'm uh, mentioning, we saw the pattern you're describing, underfunding of public health, then a terrible tragedy occurs and a lot of money put in uh, for a short period of time, then cut sharply again. You're absolutely right. That's the pattern that we've seen. And we're fearful that will happen again. So what we're doing uh, in, the, in this period now is saying to members of Congress and members of the administration, look at this pattern over the last 20 years. Look at how much it's cost us each time there's been a major outbreak. And, and certainly we're seeing trillions of dollars being spent now with COVID-19. Had we had a robust, well-funded public health system, we could have prevented a fair amount of the suffering that the nation is, um, is experiencing. 
it's going to cost us one way or another. It's better to put the money into prevention than put putting the money into an emergency once the damage has been done. Prevention makes sense. Let's talk concretely about how it is that we can provide a, a level of support for the public health system that will ensure that doesn't happen once we get beyond this epidemic. Throughout much of the past, uh, say, six to eight weeks, we've heard from quite a few governors complaining about the shortages of equipment, mainly ventilators and PPE, that they had at their disposal, and it was the feds who were negligent in making up the shortfall. Were their complaints justified? Aren't the states the real front line here, and don't they bear some responsibility for whatever their deficiencies might be? I would say it's the responsibility of all levels of government. I would highlight for you, though, that a contributing factor to the hospitals um, not being sufficiently prepared was a, a very significant reduction in funding that came from the federal government to help hospitals prepare for emergencies. This was uh, a fund that was created after 9-11. It was called the Hospital Preparedness Program. And it was the only program that uh, gave training dollars, planning dollars, uh, coordinating dollars to anticipate what needs would be and prepare appropriately to hospitals. Um, and what we've seen over the last several years is though that program, the Hospital Preparedness Program, has been cut uh, in half. 50% of the funds are gone. When we, ca- when we also factor in inflation, 60% of that money is gone. That meant that hospitals had to cut back on their planning. Uh, often that meant laying off expert personnel who were the people who were the ones to understand the magnitude of a, a pandemic and make sure that supplies were being checked. So that meant that entering the uh, COVID-19 epidemic, we had one hand tied behind our back. We just had cut what uh, was necessary uh, in terms of the planning process at the state and the local level. Um, That said, uh, certainly there's enough responsibility to go around. And what we would hope, though, is that we wouldn't have a scattershot patchwork quilt of responses. We would have a coordinated single response as a nation so that the people of the country could have some assurances that they didn't have to count on a local decision or a state decision, but that everyone, regardless of where they lived, would have assurances that their health and safety was being protected. A few weeks ago, I had a discussion with Greg Burrell, who was the manager of the National Strategic Stockpile, about the difficulty of managing a crisis in a country that's as large as a continent. We have 330 million people who are accustomed to doing whatever they want, wherever they want. And I think uh, you had mentioned this in your last response in trying to get a national coordinated effort. Doesn't the sheer size of this country almost prevent that from happening? Well, it's certainly a challenge Uh, in many ways uh, when we think about containing a pandemic like COVID-19, it's almost like we're a bunch of different countries because the conditions are so different. That said, 
it is possible to have a national coordinated plan. And we've seen times in the last 20 years where we have had that kind of response. Uh, Post 9-11, there was a national coordinated response to the threats that were associated with the events on 9-11. In uh, H1N1, which was during the period of 2009-2010, we also had a a well-coordinated effort uh, where states were given uniform information. We were told how to prioritize uh, populations that uh, should uh, be protected. We were given uniform access to supplies and ultimately to a vaccine. So my own experience as a practitioner of public health is in spite of the complexity of the country, it is possible to set a standardized level of expectations um, and to work in a coordinated partnership, local, state, and federal, around a table together, uh, doing the necessary planning and assuring that there aren't pockets that are of unmet need. Your report states that the number of people working in public health is shrinking And there are some estimates that as much as 25% of the current workforce is eligible for retirement this year. What are the problems caused by this smaller workforce and what do we do about it? It's it's significantly problematic. Uh, uh, We've lost 25% of the workforce since 2008, the $50,000 to $60,000 job, 50% uh, 50 to 60,000 jobs I mentioned earlier that, that were cut from state and local health departments never were restored. So public health is already weaker than it was in the period um, at uh, before and during 2008. Uh, in addition to that, given the impact of COVID-19 on the economy, uh, states and locals are going to be tightening their belts and making cuts, and they're probably going to, be to lay off public health people. That combined with the numbers you were just mentioning, that uh, of people who are likely to retire, could mean that we have a crippled public health system, one that's even weaker than we had prior to COVID-19. And that should be alarming to all Americans, because if there's one thing we've learned from this pandemic, it's that if you underfund public health, you pay for it. You pay for it in Expenses for sure, healthcare expenses, the economy suffers, but tr- uh, tragically, you pay for it in terms of lives lost that that could have been saved. It's it it, it um, is really a warning sign to think that we could be seeing so many people leave the public health sector and not be replaced. Well, then, what do we do about that? Uh, people make career choices all the time. Uh, what do we do to make public health uh, a career track that is enticing enough? to get enough people into the field to make up the deficiencies in manpower? Sure. Well, first of all, we have to make sure that those positions exist, that they're not, um, that when people retire, the positions don't go away because that happens not infrequently. Uh, A position is just eliminated when someone retires. So we want to make sure those positions not only are maintained, but expanded. We also want to look at the working conditions and the salaries. And sadly, people who work in public health in the public sector are uh, grossly underpaid for the most part, which means that many people who are interested in public health 
when looking at a private sector job versus a public service job, get tempted by the additional salary or benefits, maybe tuition remission, that a, a private sector job, say at a pharmaceutical company, uh, could offer. So we want to uh, value public health, value public service by making sure the positions are funded, they pay a livable wage, and people have competitive fringe benefits to what they have in other professions. The media often focus, actually I should say they always focus, on what's going wrong in our response to COVID-19. But not everything is haywire. Just what are we doing right? Well, around the country, uh, people are in public health are on the front lines in the same way that people in the healthcare sector are on the front lines. We, we tend to see the people in uh, the healthcare sector more. We see the emergency room nurses and the doctors on the wards working long hours and putting their own health at risk. That same kind of work ethic and dedication exists in the public health sector. People in the public health sector are setting up testing sites, drive-through testing sites and other stationary and innovative sites where people can be tested. They're also now in the process of developing um, a system to do what's known as contact tracing that will allow us, as America reopens up again and people go back to work, it will allow us to prevent um, a, an outbreak again that goes unresponded to by immediately identifying cases and then, uh, and then working to identify anyone who might have been exposed to someone who has a case. So public health folks are setting those systems in place. Public health folks are also running state laboratories that are involved in doing a lot of the analysis of the tests that are being done. They're putting out informational guidance to nursing homes and to schools and to businesses about the way to safely reopen. But public health tends to do all of that work below the radar screen quietly and therefore not get the, the kind of attention that I think public health people deserve. Because as you say, they are, they're working very hard and they're, they're having real successes. It's just that they're not getting that attention. Okay, let me get you out of here on this one. Let's suppose it's 2022 and the COVID-19 battle is over. You are sitting in the Oval Office with either President Trump or President Biden, and he asks you, John, what do we do next to ensure our response to the next pandemic is better than the last? What do you tell him? Well, I, I would say, uh, first and foremost, let's, let's do a, uh, a very serious analysis of what went right and what went wrong uh, in the COVID-19 response. We, we really need to know that and and have uh, a serious in-depth discussion about how to prevent that uh, in future outbreaks. But I would also say one thing we are definitely certain of is that if we want to protect the health of the public, not just with pandemics, but with weather-related emergencies, with vaping, with the obesity crisis, with opioids, we need to have a robust and well-funded public health sector. It starts at the top with the CDC, but it's at the state, local, tribal, and territorial levels. Let's give them our full support so that they can work to prevent bad things from happening so we don't always have to respond to something once it's out of control. Okay, well, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. John Auerbach, President and CEO of the Trust for America's Health, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The preceding podcast was a production of McAllen Communications, publishers of Homeland Preparedness News. To submit your ideas for future programs, just go to www.homelandprepnews.com and look for the podcast section on the front page. Until next time, I am your host, Jim Murtha. Be well, be safe, and be prosperous. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.